You're listening to a podcast brought to you by international law firm Trowers and Hamlins, combining market sector thought leadership, advice, and ideas, helping businesses and governments prepare for the future. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to the latest Trowers podcast, focusing on social housing valuations and property charging during turbulent times. I'm Luke Ross. I'm Director of Communications Consultancy Social, and I'm joined by Richard Petty, Head of Affordable Housing at JLL, and Katie Dyer, Partner at Trowers and Hamlings. Hi, both. Morning. Hello. Hi, everyone. To set the scene for today's discussion, uh, Trowers and JLL hit the road towards the end of 2022 with a series of seminars aimed at helping housing providers across the country navigate the property charging and valuations market during a pretty torrid period, both economically and politically. Uh, the roadshow took place amid the fallout of Liz Truss's short-lived premiership and now notorious mini-budget. And it also came at a pivotal moment for social housing policy with the 7% rent cap announced by government mid-roadshow, meaning figures and forecasts and slide presentations being hastily revised along the way. So now the dust has settled a bit, it's a good opportunity to hear from Richard and Katie on what's been happening in the market, where we are now and what might be next. So I'm gonna start with a question for Richard. Uh, late last year, you suggested that in some cases, valuations on the basis of EUBSH could drop by as much as 70% and for MVT by around four to 6%. Why was that, Richard? Um, yeah, at the, at the time, um, a, a couple of people called me a prophet of doom for, for bringing up uh, uh, those figures, particularly the 70% figure. Um, I, I think it's really important first to, to try and separate the two bases of valuation. So, so let's deal with EUV SH first. Um, and there were lots of moving parts at the time, as, as you just referenced in your introduction, Luke. Um, the, the, the backdrop, of course, was was uh, Liz Truss and, and the mini budget. Um, we had uh, rising guilt yields very sharply. We had rising inflation um, and, and we had some real turbulence uh, in, in the financial market. Um, and, and then at some point in that cycle of, uh, of seminars, we, we had the rent cap. But at the time I was first talking about this, we we didn't know where the rent cap was, was going to land or indeed whether whether we might even have a, a rent freeze. So just to take the rent cap, first of all, um, the 7% rent cap, I've, I've been on record as saying is a really positive settlement for the sector. I think government reached exactly the right conclusion in response to its own consultation. Uh, and the impact of that on valuations is, is generally positive. And we were very clear about that. Um, but there is a policy risk around uh, rent policy beyond 2023. Um, the inflation has already done a lot of damage to uh, operating costs across across providers and that damage is, is still being done now. We are seeing inflation coming down but costs are still going up um, and there is more uh, risk around around macroeconomics and around around the financials and that of course plays into our views as valuers on, on discount rates. Um, but the other thing we were trying to do with, with that reference to what could happen to values is to sort of pull the blanket off, a, off, off an elephant that's been hiding in the middle of the room, which is the impact of, of decarbonisation spend. And there are lots of separate conversations uh, about this, you know, coming from the funders, big focus on ESG in, in providers. And I think that's been heightened by energy costs and by the cost of living crisis. And a couple of years ago now, some really good work from the Fed and, and by our friends at Savills identified probably 25,000 spend per, per property on, on decarbonisation across the sector. So what I was really principally trying to do was to say what happens if we 
crystallize that expenditure, put it into the valuations, but do it in the in the short term. Um, and it's it's shining a light on the valuation maths. Um, timing is absolutely critical, of course, in terms of that expenditure. But if you put £25,000 worth of capital expenditure against valuation that might only be fifty or £60,000 to start with, not surprisingly, it has a, it has a big um, adverse impact made worse by combining it with the other factors we've just talked about. So I guess the point of all that is, is we can't do everything all at once in the sector and not expect there to be an impact on asset values. But I wasn't saying that values would fall by 70%. I was saying that they could, if you like, in a worst case scenario. And just, just very briefly on the other part of the question, MVT was completely different. That was looking at what might happen to house prices and what might happen to market rents and how that might flow through, but also taking account of, of the fact that costs in um, maintaining properties in an MVT scenario have gone up just as they have with, with EUV SH. Great stuff. Thank you, Richard. So I think it's fair to say we're probably through that period of extreme turbulence, aren't we? But as you say, there's no shortage of risks still in the market. So where are we now in terms of your sort of forecasts and calculations versus where we were about a month or so ago? Um, I guess coming back to my elephant in the room analogy, the elephant isn't going away. Um, and in terms of the scale of expenditure that's that's necessary on decarbonisation, the elephant is actually getting bigger because that 25,000 figure um, is, is out of date now. And in, in any event, it was a low end of the range at the time so we just need to be very mindful that um, that, that that is still there and I, I do think we need a discussion in the sector about um, uh, how shall I put it when you know, whether we put the blanket back over the elephant and leave it there for a bit or whether we actually take it off keep it off and, and find a way of, of dealing with it um, I, I do think however that aside that markets generally are calmer and this is true of the property market and, and the financial markets much calmer than they were at the time that we started speaking about this in in early october at the treasury conference um i, I think there is uh, dare i say more optimism around now you know guilt yields have come down and then crept back up again but seem fairly stable at the moment inflation is coming down um and uh, we'll perhaps come on to the, the, the property market in a minute, but the fundamentals of what I talked about last year haven't changed, um, but I think there are some, some good reasons to be a little bit more optimistic than we were um, in, in the fourth quarter of last year. Well, that's, that's certainly nice to hear. So, so just on that point, that's, that's a neat segue, isn't it, into sentiment around the housing market. Um, you know, there's conflicting signals, I suppose, from, you know, from various commentators and forecasters. I mean, what are we seeing in the in the market broadly, and is there reason to be more optimistic than there was today, a month ago, or more? Uh, Katie, can I ask you that one, please? Uh, yes, I think basically the certainty around the rent cap has been key in the housing sector to enable people to actually be certain about business planning um, and what their funding requirements may now be. Um, Richard's obviously referenced, and you have the more certain economic climate, which probably has provided a bit more comfort, especially around um, interest rates, although they're still potentially going up or not going down anytime soon. Um, perhaps they're not going to be rising as sharply for the moment anyway. And I think as a result of that, and we had identified, and I think the regulator has, there's still huge amounts of 
um, untapped security and a need for refinancing um, coming up. But I think that had been on pause um, for a while with all of that turbulence. But I think, well, the first part of this year has probably been the busiest January we've ever seen with things starting to come through, lots of new financing, refinancing, reshuffling. Um, we also had um, one of the first bonds at the end of last year. Um, that was the first one since about April time. So I think investor and funder confidence is coming back in the market. Um, and we're definitely seeing that from our side. Yeah, I, th- I think if I can just build on that as well, Luke, um, the key thing in the housing market at the moment is it's really a slowdown in, in volume rather than a collapse in prices. So there were some very bearish views around in the fourth quarter of last year, um, talking about a house price collapse starting this year. Um, we didn't subscribe to that view at JLL, and, and we certainly don't subscribe to it now. I think some of the most bearish views talking about house prices falling by as much as 20% uh, are just not borne out at all by how the market has ever responded to past economic and, and financial cycles but it's definitely a slow market in terms of volume Um, and I think uh, house builders in particular are being uh, careful about how they position price um, even though volumes are falling Um, but there are some good signs actually we've avoided recession perhaps to everybody's surprise Um, the mortgage market is easing um, and and rates are coming down and number of products on offer uh, is going up Um, I think the really critical issues in terms of how this plays out are consumer confidence and how house builders respond to that and and also how government responds in terms of um, whether it stimulates the market or or leaves it to to, to find its own level. Um, But I think it is a a more settled scene now than it was towards the end of last year. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly whoever you speak to in the market certainly feels like we're in the midst of a a house building building slowdown if, if, you know, Either, either it's already started or, or it's about to start. And clearly, from a housing association's perspective, the message is ten, you know, tends to be at the moment that development will have to um, slow down as a result of competing pressures. But interestingly, you mentioned their untapped value that housing associations have. So can we get into that a little bit? And can I ask, I mean, how, how much untapped value do housing associations actually have currently? Well, I think it's a really difficult question to put a number on it. Um, that there's there's no doubt at all that there is um, plenty of latent value in, in housing association stock if we think about um, the, the difference between EUVSH and, and MVT typically and, and obviously I do appreciate this can vary significantly uh, around the country uh, and there will be um, some areas where there won't be much difference between the two bases of valuation um, but MVT can be double or more than double uh, EUVSH, um, particularly in London and the southeast, it can be much more than double. So it, where you've got stock, particularly old transfer stock that, that is um, charged on, on an EUVSH basis, there, are potential, there is potential for significant uplift in value. Um, and, and there may well be uh, legal reasons around title um, where, where uh, value can be released as well but in, in terms of quantifying it across the whole sector that's very difficult to put a figure on okay katie anything to add on that one yeah obviously from the due diligence that we see we know there are still significant pools of assets that we've not been able to get mvst on a charging exercise either because that final bit of planning <laughs> permission or sign-off hasn't been able to be obtained 
um, to confirm that there aren't any use restrictions. So we've ended up with EUV or properties weren't able to be put into charge because there just wasn't the time or the documentation to sort of satisfy environmental or other um, areas of property due diligence that funders may have concern about. Um, I think also, as Richard said, on the LSVT properties, perhaps in 2016, when the Secretary of State consent requirement for funders was lifted, I think a lot of work was done to see whether it was worth doing or not. And perhaps in some areas, the differential between EUV and MBST wasn't worth it for the amount of work that you actually needed to do to do the due diligence to uplift. But perhaps if there is a more significant advantage for valuing MBST uh, values, perhaps it is worth just revisiting that because we are sort of about eight years on now from from that. And it there probably is still value from that. And then also those tranche X or problem tranches that no one really wants to touch that there's probably still a bit of work to be done on that but again it's worth digging those out again I think for associations because there's always just a little bit more value you can extract from getting that managing company or landlord to give that consent or remove the restriction that perhaps in the timing that you'd actually set to set out and do that at the time Um, you've got a bit more time to do that if you can. Yeah I think that kind of preempts my next question a bit doesn't it about how our housing associations can go about um, seeking an uplift in their property values and more they can do about that. Um, Richard, is there any more, more to add on that? Yes, I think there are clearly two aspects to this. One, one is the valuation aspect and the other is the legal due diligence. Um, as is often the case, the valuation bit is, is the uh, easier and, and quicker side to it. Um, so we do a lot of uh, work with providers um, uh, on this where we're looking at the potential for uplift in value and I think it can be really helpful um, to try and quantify that and provide all the uh, analysis and breakdown behind it as a scheme by scheme level to see what the potential is and, and to do that as a way of um, identifying where perhaps the greatest value uh, is likely to be realised once the legal due diligence is in place because the legal work is going to be uh, more time consuming uh, and more, more complicated. So um, I would suggest a, a desktop exercise is often the way to go first to get the high level potential um, and then uh, refine it down so you can identify the schemes where you need to do the physical due diligence as well to give a robust valuation um, and do that in, in parallel with the legal work. I assume you agree with all of that, Katie. <laughs> yes, best definitely needs both parts, sort of almost in tandem. Um, we don't know if it's worth doing the legal due diligence if the valuation doesn't support it. But equally, obviously, the valuers can't confirm. You can definitely get the uplift unless we confirm that the due diligence supports that. I think from our side, we can do some very high level title due diligence, a bit of a rag analysis just for some headline points, but still that might be okay but it's the more detailed due diligence still needs to be done and that still can reveal that uplifts can't be achieved so um it's just making sure again the valuation supports the work that might be required um to do that but in some areas because the valuation uplift between the EV and MBST can be so significant um it probably definitely is what well, it's definitely <laughs> worth doing for the differential in in the legal and valuation costs so are we saying ultimately that most housing associations should be looking to charge as much of their stock as possible on the basis of MVT? And I suppose the kind of, uh, you know, additional part of that question is what's been stopping them from doing that in the past? 
Um, I, I think the short answer, Lou, is yes. I think housing associations should be looking to charge as much as possible on, on the basis of MVT. Um, the, uh, the the difference in value, as we've just been discussing, even once you take into account the, the asset cover requirements, should make that worthwhile in, in most cases. Um, there will be uh, some instances where the, the, the nature of the stock doesn't lend itself to an MVT valuation, and that's perhaps to do with um, the nature of the stock, its, its, its type, its age, its condition, and sometimes its location. But you know, to, be, to be fair, there are not many of those instances. Um, sometimes it is uh, the nature of their loan agreement, of course, and what the, what the funder will accept. Mm. Um, and, and sometimes it's, um, it goes back to all the legal issues that, that I'm sure Katie, Katie will expand on. But that there is a volatility point here, which I think is really important, actually. And I, I did say this in the autumn. We've been very used as a sector to having um, stability and predictability with EUVSH and MVT being seen as more volatile. I think for all the reasons I talked about earlier around particularly policy risk um, and, and the compulsion in a regulated sector to do the right thing around decarbonisation, um, EUVSH is looking more vulnerable at the moment um, with, with MVT. Uh, you know, what we're seeing happening in the housing market, we, we talked a bit about house prices falling earlier, but really importantly, market rents are not falling. They are rising and they're going to go on rising. Um, and that is going to mean that MVT is surprisingly more resilient, I think, than EUV um, over, over, the, uh, over the coming months and years ahead. Great. Thanks, Richard. Katie? Um, I think basically borrowers or RP should be always looking to try and maximise the valuation potential of their properties, um, regardless of the status of, of the market, just to enable them to have more flexibility around what they want to do with the stock, whether that's charging it, selling it, um, or looking to sort of change the asset or a 10-year basis on which they're um, letting the properties out. Um, I think as well for a funder, if they've got greater flexibility on who and how they can transfer an asset in an enforcement scenario, so that means looking at your mortgagee exclusion clauses and making sure that there aren't those restrictions um, on use or ownership in uh, documentation, which potentially can be quite easy now that lo more local authorities are on board with amending them, then that is something they should be looking to do potentially anyway, regardless of whether they're looking to get MVST or, or EUV valuations. Um, so I think, yeah, just maximising your asset either on acquisition, making sure that you're buying something that can support a decent valuation down the line if you do come to charge it or um, looking to do that while they're in charge um, and just constantly monitoring the valuation and the status of your stock. Are we in a situation where we kind of need to move on from EUVSH as a, as a sector? Is, is, because it feels like there's, you know, there's, there's all this latent capacity within the sector and you know, often you have discussions with uh, people within housing associations and they talk about the the market value of their of their housing and their stock, and you know if that was really unlocked, how much that would unleash in terms of you know borrowing and, and further investment. You know, is it a time to really be reviewing EUVSH again? I I think it's a really good question. I I don't think the sector as a whole should move on from EUVSH in terms of leaving it behind entirely, um, because it does encapsulate. Um, the or should until now have encapsulated the predictability of rental income, and it and it speaks to the um, 
highly regulated, quite conservative, and therefore you know, very secure characteristics that are fundamentally appealing to investors and lenders. But I think if you if you think back a couple of years or more than a couple of years now, um, you know, with um, our colleagues at Savills and with RICS, we did a lot of work on um, trying to capture the potential benefits of partial financial deregulation in the sector and the fact that um, disposals are possible. Um, and you know, we, we put forward a proposition that actually market value social housing, as we called it, was a more realistic and reflective way of, for how the sector both trades assets or how a lender might realize assets in, in a default situation. Uh, and that's been completely untouched by every lender since we, we put it forward as a proposition. I think that's a great shame. I think that's a missed opportunity. So I think it's not so much about moving on from EUVSH. I think it's about recognizing that it needs to evolve and capture that additional value because it is there, it's latent, it's, it's frankly pretty much risk-free to a lender. Uh, so I think it's about evolution rather than abandonment. That's really interesting. Richard. I mean, that was, that's what I was thinking about there, Richard, actually. I, I remember when I was at Social Housing Magazine, that was a front page story, you know, the, the third way valuations potentially. And yeah, fascinating to hear that update that, that you know, there hasn't really been that appetite or, or take up for it. Yeah, I, I think, sorry, if I could just add a, another thought on that, Luke, I, I think um, that there's a, there's a really important issue that we do keep coming back to uh, publicly at conferences around lotting. Um, but since EUVSH was first created for, um, for the purposes of stock transfer, and it was innovative and very necessary at the time, we now have a genuine trading market between providers. We know so much more about how providers assess the value of stock when they're buying it from others, uh, and we and we we're doing that now in that in that um, uh, deregulated environment that we've just talked about. So. Allowing valuers to assess stock in the way that the market would actually price it um, is, I think, perfectly reasonable and realistic. And, and funders should have more confidence in that and should have more flexibility to allow valuers to interpret the market they see and bring that knowledge and experience to their valuations. We're not generally allowed to do that at the moment. And again, I think it's, 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 it's missing an obvious win for the sector. Well, that's a very clear message to funders, uh, any funders listening to this one. Um, well, I think we'll come back. We've, we've got some more um, some more topics to cover on the, from the investor perspective. But, but one more one more question, um, bringing it back to the, the here and now is yeah, for housing asso associations. How can housing associations ensure that their valuations are as accurate as possible? And, and what sort of information do you actually need from them, Richard? Um, I, I think it comes down very simply to data. Um, and, and completeness and accuracy of data. Um, it, I hope it, it, it goes without out saying that we need really accurate uh, information on the properties, so the basics of what they are um, and the rents and, and the tenancies. Um, in, in most organizations, that is, is a given. Occasionally, uh, there are some issues with, with accuracy and, and, and data management, but those, those, those are rare. But I think then it's, it, it's building on that. So we, we need to know what the EPC ratings are. Uh, and the more information we can have on stock condition, what's been spent, what's been done, and what the investment plan is, the forward spend plan on that stock, um, then 
the, the more we can work that information into um, valuations that are of course supplemented by inspections and our own physical due diligence. So completeness and accuracy of data, but the forward investment plan and that knowledge of what's already been done to properties is, is critical and that can, that can really help. Yeah, I mean, data is, is, is the, the topic on everyone's lips at the moment, isn't it? Across the sector, really, including taking us back to investors, uh, what investors are asking of the sector now um, through an ESG lens, but also a broader kind of request for performance data and disclosures. And interestingly, the, the Investment Association, which represents its 10 trillion pounds worth of assets under management and basically all the investors that, that do fund the sector issued guidance recently, um, suggesting that investors expect associations to publish details of the value, value of their uncharged properties on, on their websites. Uh, can you explain a bit more about the requirements there and, and how associations can help make sure that they meet, meet investor expectations? I think the guidance represents a, a huge update to the 2017 version um, that was put out. There's a lot more information that they're now having to publish, especially, as you say, Luke, around environmental, social and governance matters. Um, I think from my perspective, just on the security side, the most interesting bit um, and perhaps the most concerning bit, depending on whether the associations have that information, is just the volume um, and the amount of information they need to be putting out there on their stock, their valuations, and in particularly the unencumbered properties. And then it, it notes that you also have to set out their ability to be charged. But I know obviously people know the stuff that they have managed to charge, but there's still huge amounts of work to actually understand your unencumbered assets. I know people are looking to unsecured funding as the answer to not really knowing <laughs> all of the things that they should about their stock because there is just that big pool. But actually, for Richard and valuers to value that properly, they still need to know what they own, what the lease terms are. Um, are there any still any restrictions and everything that might impact value? So really, associations need to be doing quite a lot more work. And I think it was just quite striking in that how much information they do need to publish to satisfy investors um, and the huge gap to fill there potentially for associations and um, their obligations to their investors. Um, I think that that's probably something that they do need to get on top of uh, quite urgently anyway, even if the investors didn't didn't want to see it. But yeah. How about you, Richard? Do you have a view on, on what the IA are asking for level of disclosure? Yes, yes, I do. And uh, there's, there's an awful lot in, in the new guidance that providers are doing anyway and would probably regard now as, as, as business as usual in terms of reporting and disclosure. Um, but, but Katie's absolutely right. I think the, um, the, the full list of, of property specific data and performance data on how well they're managing their assets is pretty onerous actually uh, and I, I'm, I'm not sure that all of it is expected of providers all at once. Um, I think I'm right in saying that the IA has, has acknowledged that, that their guidelines are um, aspirational in some respects. It will take time um, to get all this information out there in, in the right form. And, and I, th I think, to be honest, for a lot of investors who are, um, I, I know, you know from 
from first-hand and second-hand experience, very focused on not only the property side, but also the, the governance and the social purpose of organisations. There's an awful lot of very granular data here that probably doesn't form a, a critical part of their decision-making process about whether they invest through bonds issued by particular providers. Um, so I think it will take the sector quite a while to reach that full aspirational standard and the smaller the organization is the more difficult it will be for it to do so i think yeah we heard from the investment association this week um during a, another webinar which everyone should check out if they weren't attending uh one one hosted by social this week but one of the other points i think that the investment association was making was actually the whole the the the, the ask um, is being made of, of, of sexes across the board. And it's this, it's this whole move towards greater disclosure, greater transparency. So it isn't really just, I mean, obviously there's, you know, some of the criteria are, are kind of sector specific, but the, the, yeah, this drive towards more transparency is something that we're seeing across industries, across markets. And clearly, you know, the key driver for that is ESG and the focus on, on ESG. How does that relate to or have an impact on valuations and portfolio transactions? Um, I think uh, that the, the E part of ESG is um, be becoming much more important in, in those transactions. If we think about how the uh, portfolio transactions market has, has evolved in recent years, you, you very commonly get quite a focus on on stock condition mm -hmm. um, and what the implications are for, for future investment. Um, we're now really seeing the E part of ESG come into that. So as, as you're pricing and evaluating how you bid for stock and indeed whether you want to bid at all, having a grip on necessary investment to decarbonize that housing stock in the future and when it needs to be done is becoming more important. Um, I think the, the, the social side, the, the, the S of ESG, doesn't play into valuations directly um, and, and certainly not in the portfolio transactions market where you know, one provider to another um, you clearly have a common social purpose. Um, the, the G side also I think is an important, important point to make, although it's very important in terms of the IA and the sort of disclosures that are necessary in, in the bond market, um, the G side of things in valuation almost takes a, a, a back seat because we're talking about what a hypothetical purchaser would pay for that stock rather than the stewardship of the current owner. So it's not about the governance of the current owner. It's it's about how it sits in the, in the framework of somebody else. Okay, it's really interesting. Thanks, Richard. So we started the conversation looking back. Uh, so it feels right that maybe we should end it looking forward. So, so, so looking ahead, um, all eyes will be turning to the spring budget before too long. What would you like to see and what do you think we'll see from this government from, from the spring budget? Well, I, I think if I can just jump in, um, what, what, we, what we will see and what we might like to see, probably, unfortunately, two different things. Um, to, a, a couple of thoughts. I'll just start with, with decarbonizing. This isn't just about the social sector. It's about the housing market. Generally, I think there's a lot that government could do uh, to support and incentivize homeowners, um, landlords and, and social landlords to um, decarbonize their housing stock. Um, and even on a practical level, that might just be about 
um, in, investing in ensuring that we've got the capacity and the infrastructure as a country to achieve that. Because, for example, we have an awful lot of gas fitters who need to be retrained to do air source heat pumps and ground source uh, heat pumps. We don't have that at the moment. Um, I think there's an opportunity around shared ownership. Um, we, you know, help to buy has, has come to an end. I, I don't think it will be replaced. Um, I think shared ownership is, you know, something of an unsung hero in, in, in the housing market and a, and a real statement of support from government around that. Perhaps, for example, relaunching a, a do-it-yourself shared ownership product and helping uh, in some way to create a pipeline of investable product would be really, really useful. Um, something about the AHP, maybe, because, you know, we're in the 21 to 26 program. Um, the grant levels are nowhere near enough to, to deliver the, the supply of homes that the, the, the program originally set out to to deliver. If you if you, if you do the maths, it's about seventy thousand per home um, for the one hundred sixty two thousand that the program was meant to support, and that's probably twenty percent of the cost in in many areas, and, and that that does you know brings back actually to everything we've just been talking about about the importance of maximising. Um, asset value and you know, perhaps just just a, a last thought about the, the really desperate need for a genuine long-term rent commitment um, because we don't know where we stand beyond 2023 there's a massive policy risk there uh, and, and a genuine commitment to hopefully going back to CPI plus one that would go a long way actually to, to supporting valuations and creating confidence in the sector Thanks, Richard. I'm sure, I'm sure there's lots of people in the sector that would second that last point and, and many of the things that are on your wish list. What about you, Katie? What's, what, what's on your wish list and what do you think we're going to see from, from government crystal ball sort of gazing time? Um, probably quite a lot of what Richard's already said. Um, we did a, an energy crisis webinar uh, a week or so ago, and I think anything that they can do to just assist people supporting on the energy um, prices that are still continuing to rise I think we've been lucky that it's been a milder winter although the cold snap <laughs> that we've currently had again kind of focuses the mind a bit so I think there still needs to be more support um, for those struggling to pay their energy bills and perhaps a bit more granular um, detail around those who are struggling more rather than um, just a broad brush approach which perhaps has been applied uh, so far um, probably addressing issues around prepayment meters which are just exorbitantly expensive but probably hit those people that can't afford the bills um most um, and then as richard says you know support and incentives around retrofitting um for all types of stock really so that we are just trying to reach net zero carbon as fast as we can great thanks thanks for that katie well i think um, you know there's so much to talk about isn't there and i think this one could could run and run I'm pretty sure we'll be back at some point to update and review where we are with things. Hopefully at that time, maybe we'll be seeing a more benign economic environment. We can at least hope, can't we? Um, but thank you to Richard and Katie for all of their insights today. It's been really, really interesting. Um, and thanks to everyone that's, that's tuned in to listen to this podcast. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Trowers and Hamlins. Find us at trowers.com and join in the conversation on Twitter at Trowers, or find us on LinkedIn and Instagram.